Hello to everyone out there in America and beyond. Welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a fast-moving, fun, military defense news podcast. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. Every week, I primarily do three things. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, while also trying to better educate Americans about looming hotspots and foreign policy news you absolutely should know. Second, I attempt to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division and animosity toward each other is dangerous, and I want to do my small part to remind us that more unites us than divides us, and that most Americans are good and not screaming crazy extremists like you see on the news all the time. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to do my small part to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and I think it's fair to say all of us need all the motivation and encouragement that we can possibly get. Every Thursday, I produce this podcast, so if you haven't signed up yet, I'd appreciate if you did. All episodes are ad-free, and it's completely free to sign up and join the email list, or you can help sustain and support the show for $5 per month. Subscribing will also get you the View from the Front Extended, which is a daily newsletter that I put out Monday through Friday each day, usually in the morning. You can find out how to subscribe from my Substack page, which is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the March 30th edition, and man, does it feel good right now. It's like finally spring is starting to feel real, correct? Am I wrong on that? I know we're into it just a tad, but it didn't really feel real, and uh, we got hit with a cold spurt, at least around Knoxville for a bit, and uh, it's starting to feel like spring again. It feels great. Got my stepson. He's 14 now. He's on the ball field starting practice and hearing... You know, the sound of a ball off a baseball bat, MLB starting up, and you can almost just start to, like, sense that summer is almost here. So it's freaking a great time to be alive. Thanks for joining us. we got a ton of news to cover, and this is kind of like last week. There's so much that's happened that it's it's hard to rank as to what is should go where in as far as importance, and so we're just going to get into it. I've got plenty of news, though, as usual, plenty on the U.S., plenty on Russia and Ukraine, there'll be plenty on China, and we're just going to kind of work our way through it, so let's just get started. I wanted to start the news this week with some U.S. news involving troops that are serving in Syria, and this all broke was kind of hot on Friday and through the weekend and then it's kind of calmed down but it's still one of those things that if you were putting news in order anytime U.S. forces are involved with some casualties you have to cover it and so I do want to cover it and so going back to Friday there were some um, Iranian drones or suspected Iranian drones I guess I should be very clear that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded five American troops in northeast Syria, and the Pentagon reported that. It made pretty big news then. So American forces retaliated with precision airstrikes. Uh, They attacked some targets in Syria that were um, buildings that were used by groups affiliated with Iran's uh, Revolutionary Guard. Things were pretty tense for a bit, and I think at least I suspected additional strikes because it looked like that Iran, according to some of the things you saw on social media, that Iran attacked again after that, or Iranian-backed militants, I guess is probably the correct term. And it actually was reported on Fox News about the additional attacks, and you can see on social media that there were some new Iranian attacks. And all through the weekend, everyone expected America to just drop the hammer, and I certainly did, as I told... Uh, some folks, you know, Iran is looking for a distraction from the demonstrations and unrest that's been in that country for almost five, six months now. At the same time, you've got President Biden, who's taken just a ton of heat for the withdrawal from Afghanistan a year ago. 
And so I don't think he wants to appear weak. And so it's really the kind of situation that's volatile and that could quickly spiral to much higher levels that neither side really wanted or predicted or anticipated. But I guess calmer heads have prevailed. Nothing additional has happened since Friday and the weekend. I do know, I think the U.S. positioned some additional air power in the area uh, based on some of the stuff I've seen. I think the U.S. is definitely ready to drop the hammer if that is the decided decision or if Iran were to again. I'm not sure if this is one of those situations where the Secretary of State or someone very high up reaches out to Iran and lays out, you know, if this happens again, here are... A, B, and C of what we're going to do. So you might want to get your people in line because it's certainly gotten quiet since then. And like I said, it looks like at least based on those second attacks, assuming they happened, I could only find them in one media source, but I feel like they did possibly happen. I think the Pentagon didn't want to confirm it. But, I, you know, the U.S. did hold back from additional strikes and perhaps there was a second strike against us, but we did held back. I don't know if anyone was injured in that. These are This is in a part of the country where there's almost no media presence. You don't exactly go in the northeastern part of Syria with a journalist, you know, press badge around your neck. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to live long doing that. So we pretty much are reliant on the U.S. and the Pentagon announcing anything. Now, I will say some folks said on... You know, on social media, I uh, got some feedback from, you know, folks. I love getting feedback. One of them said, exactly when was the vote to authorize U.S. forces to fight in Syria? And so I explained to them that this is like a continuation of the fight against ISIS. If you remember, after we invaded Iraq and helped create slash install a new government, the ISIS started taking off. And this goes all the way back to President Obama. We're talking well over 10 plus years ago. Obama took a lot of heat because ISIS initially was doing really well. They created their own country, partly in the western part of Iraq and in the eastern part of Syria. Obama took a ton of heat for this because ISIS was doing really well against Iraqi units. But then, uh, of course, Syria's government was in the middle of a civil war, and so there was this area that ISIS could operate. But Obama started taking enough heat that he started cranking up some pressure. Of course, he was followed by President Trump, who also cranked up pressure. And we mostly destroyed ISIS. We took basically the, the land that they were ruling, so to speak. They were definitely collecting taxes, if that's the right term. But they definitely controlled an area. We took all that back, but there have been remnants of it. So U.S. forces have continued to assist and aid both Iraqi forces in the area as well as uh, some Syrian allies to help crush what's left of ISIS. So that's what this really boils down to. But if you want to go a little broader on it, Iran is supporting some of these groups that are trying to drive out U.S. influence in the area. So it's really almost a proxy skirmish between Iran and the United States. We are helping train and assist some local units. Iran is doing the same. And so really, that's what this really boils down to. One other thing I wanted to cover involving U.S. news, and I really don't know how big this is, and I'll explain why here in just a second, but the United States Senate voted to repeal the Iraq War power authorizations. And so this was 20 plus years after the invasion. There's been some talk about doing this for a long time. It's finally passed. It will go to the House of Representatives and the uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that he supports it. And so it will probably be brought to the floor. There is probably bipartisan support for it. And so 20 years after invading Iraq... It will probably pass. The uh, President Biden said he supports repealing it. So it goes back to 1991 initially, and then 2002 after that, there was two of them. So in theory, it will uh, pass both you know, houses of Congress. And on the one hand, that's good because Congress you know, is the only body that has the ability to declare war, but Congress has pretty much not done its job for the better part of 
50, 60 years with a few small exceptions. So they're going to pass this, but I don't know how big a deal it is because I think that both President Biden and whoever the next president is and the next 10 after that will probably continue to use war on terror type resolutions to do things that they believe need to be done. So I'm really not sure how big a deal it is, but I did want to mention that it was passed. I'll try to dig some more to see what it actually means, if anything. One other thing I definitely wanted to make sure I spotlighted was, you may remember a week or two ago, the drone incident in the Black Sea where two Russian fighters were making close passes and they dropped fuel on this drone trying to mess up its cameras and electronics and then one of them clipped it and caused it to crash into the water. Since then, the, you know, initially the U.S. was expressed outrage, said it was international waters, we wouldn't change what we were doing. That, however, may or may not be the case. The um, chairman of, or actually the Secretary of Defense, as well as, as well as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but the Secretary of Defense was grilled just a day or so ago about whether the U.S. has given up or ceded airspace to Russia. And so there are off-the-record sources that say that since that drone was forced down, that the U.S. has not basically flown drones in that same area, that we're, we've moved much further south. And so the Secretary of Defense was absolutely grilled on that by some Republican leaders, and he would not... He wouldn't deny that we basically have pulled back a bit. So some will, those on the right will say that that makes us look weak. Those in the middle or the left, they may say, hey, this is the wiser course of action. The Secretary of Defense said that they will fly any pass they, quote, feel necessary to collect intelligence information, end quote. So there's a chance that they found a less aggressive way to get some of that intelligence or that I'm not sure if maybe even Ukraine may have asked us to back up a bit, or maybe it's just flat-out weakness. So I'm not sure which of those three it would be, but I will definitely keep my eyes out to try to dig a little bit more on that as now that there's this small little string or thread that the media has started pulling, more will come out, and so the administration will have to explain if they are, in fact, doing this, which they appear to be, and then why. Let's end with two more quick little things about U.S. news, and then we'll move to Russia and Ukraine. One is, there is video of something that Russia continues to play just silly games. But there is video that I'll put in the Substack notes that shows just remarkably dangerous and stupid actions by a Russian destroyer. This happens happened over in the Philippine Sea, actually, with against the uh, USS Chancellorville. And you almost have to see the video... But they keep this destroyer is going alongside one of the USS Chancellorville, and our ship is going. They're they are moving. I mean, it's like probably fifteen knots or so. It's not like they're moving slow. So they're they're moving. They look they're moving fast. Anyone who's been on a cruise ship, if you haven't been in the navy, you can tell these ships are moving very fast. And this Russian destroyer just keeps getting closer and closer and closer and closer, and it gets so close, in fact. The 7th Fleet issued a statement saying it was, quote, unsafe and unprofessional. But you can tell that it gets so close that if our destroyer had tried to move left, you know, not even a hard left, but say 20 or 30 degrees, it's close enough that you would not be able to steer aggressively to the left without the rear of this destroyer, because these, these are very long ships, would have collided with the Russian one. So it's almost like the Russian ship... I mean, it was beyond beyond aggressive, but these incidents continue, and so hopefully, and you almost have to worry about it on any given day, something like this doesn't spiral out of control, but they definitely continue to push their luck. And then the final thing I wanted to mention was, and it just by pure just luck, I came across this uh, this weekend, actually, and it was just a small comment from the Department of State, but I read it and I thought, you know, this was just a great statement for what the United States stands for. And so the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said, 
you know, the post-Cold War era is over, and there is an intense competition underway to shape and to determine what comes next. And the statement was this, The United States has a positive vision for the future, a world that is free, that is secure, that is open, that is prosperous. And I read that and I thought, you know, that really is like a nice just summary of what the U.S. is trying to achieve. And I know some people say, oh, we shouldn't interfere in Ukraine, which, you know, and some say we shouldn't interfere in China. But, you know, with with Russia and Ukraine, even with Russians, Russia's military heavily engaged, very bloodied, greatly weakened, literally Russia continues their, their media folks some of their defense people, they continue to threaten Poland, which is a NATO member. They have obviously got a long history of invading neighbors. They continue to sow dissent in other part of Europe's, of, of European countries. So to me, it's like if the U.S. pulls back, how much war, how much bloodshed would happen? Because we are a very stabilizing influence. And I, I would debate that with anyone. We've made mistakes. We're not perfect. But to imagine the U.S. completely pulling back and allowing China to increasingly push against the Philippines, Thailand, all these countries over there that China is already pushing against, is already threatening, threatening to invade Taiwan. There are millions of people that live there. They're already threatening like regional stability in an, in an entire hemisphere. And so it's not like we're having to bully these countries to create alliances. These countries want us to help prevent China from, because they are bigger, doing what they want in these trade routes and just pushing around these smaller countries. So anyway, that was the statement. I thought it was really good. I'll read it one more time. The United States has a positive vision for the future, a world that is free, that is secure, that is open, that is prosperous. I thought that's pretty good and not the worst vision to have. Now, since last Thursday, there's been a ton of things that have dropped about Russia and Ukraine and the war going on there. I'll start with the AP had a great story where they did a series of interviews with him as he toured various parts of Ukraine, including the front line by train. Now, obviously, the trip was secret and the interviews weren't published until after the trip ended. But the story from the Associated Press is remarkable and it's absolutely worth a read. I thought I'd share just a couple of parts of it, and I've got the link in the sub uh, sub notes, but or substack notes. But here's just a couple of nuggets from it. First of all, they asked him about Bakhmut and why that had to be defended, since as we've talked about for so many weeks, many Western observers and advisors and strategists say that city had absolutely no military value. So why did Ukraine keep so many forces there to defend it? This is what the president of Ukraine said, Zelensky, who you all know well. He said that if Bakhmut had fallen to Russian forces, that the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, would, quote, sell the victory to the West, to his society, to China, to Iran. And Zelensky said, and he, he did this interview in English, so this is a little, a little spotty, but here's how he said it. He said, quote, if we if he, he being Putin, if Putin will fill some blood, smell that we are weak, he will push, push, push. So that's why he said that they held on to Bakhmut. Not that it had some military value, but just because for media reasons, if Russia had taken it, it would have been a media victory for Russia. And that is exactly what I said probably a month or so ago, that just as they were starting to pull out, and if you recall, they initially were, Western media went just absolutely nuts with that because, as I say so regularly, and part of why I launched this podcast and the newsletter is that our media is not good at covering foreign policy or wars. They have, you know, B-real video footage of explosions, and they try to hype everything up. They don't explain things very well. They only want the action and the viewers. They have almost no grasp of any detail on anything. And so they had barely covered Ukraine for a week or so, and then here it looks like Ukrainian forces are pulling back, and so they really pushed hard on Ukraine is losing Bakhmut, and then 
that's got Western people pushing against congressional leaders and saying, why are we trying to, you know, Russia's going to win, what'll happen? And so that is why Ukraine pushed more forces in there and they've held it. Back to the interview, though. One other thing that Zelensky said, he was asked about what might happen in the spring and the future of the war. And the, I'll just read the paragraph from the Associated Press. The president makes few predictions about the biggest question hanging over the war, how it will end. He expressed confidence, however, that his nation will prevail through a series of, quote, small victories, quote, and, quote, small steps, end quote, against a very big country, big enemy, big army, as he said it. But an army, he said, with, quote, small hearts. So Zelensky isn't predicting some kind of massive offensive or anything like that. He's just saying it's going to be a bunch of small victories, small steps, and that in the end he's still optimistic. Now, one other thing they asked that I wanted to share. They asked what had happened to Ukraine as a country since it was invaded by Russia more than a year ago. And just footnote, but I like to remind people, this is the third time Russia invaded Ukraine. They initially did it in 2014, they took the Crimean Peninsula, and they also invaded in the eastern part of the con of the country in the Donbass region. I just always feel it's important to remind people of that because a lot of people have a very short history on what has happened over there. But again, back to the point I wanted to make. Asked about what has happened to Ukraine since it was invaded the third time a year ago. He said, the war had changed the country and that it had made the society stronger. And he said... Quote, it could have gone one way to divide the country or another to unite us. Quote, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful to, thankful to everybody. Every single partner, our people, thank God, everybody, that we found this way in this critical moment for this nation. Finding this way was the thing that saved our nation and we saved our land. We are together. And I will say, we've talked a lot in the past six months or so. It's absolutely true that a lot of Ukrainians have moved back into the country after initially fleeing to Poland and other countries in Europe when it looked like that Ukraine was going to fall. And they have shown remarkable resilience and unity. And so much, so much of the country just absolutely insists and demand that the President Zelensky retake the entire country. They have put up with Russia for 10 plus years and they've seen a lot of war crimes and they they are tired of Russia pushing Ukraine around. So they are very united. And I think part of that is definitely an attribute of Zelensky's leadership. Moving along, I just had to share this. The Secretary of Defense for the United Kingdom, Ben Wallace, has up updated the number of Russian losses, and they now estimate that Russia has lost 220,000 troops dead and wounded in Ukraine, which is, I mean, just, it's just incredible how many have been killed or wounded there. And it's funny because if you spend any time on social media, you will see these constant attacks by the Russians and the amount of casualties that are shown by these drones are just shocking. You'll see these infantry attacks and artillery and mortars will just pound them. And there will be 10, 15 bodies there. And there will be multiple videos from some of the same attacks from that same day. And it's all clearly, they got the location, they've got, they've, you can tell it's not fabricated. This is literally happening just before I recorded this podcast today, Russia tried this pretty large attack yesterday and using tanks and armored vehicles, and they get absolutely decimated. You can see at least five vehicles destroyed in this column. And so and you can see people climbing out of burning vehicles, some not climbing out. This is war. But I don't know, you know, we've talked about older tanks. I don't know how Russia has any tanks left because they are constantly going through tank after tank after tank. And that's why they're down to using like 1960s, like T-72s, T-64s, T-60. I mean, they're going through older and older vehicles. So we've talked about before that Putin is a, but is a butcher, even to his own people. 
it's really sad that they're sending these soldiers out there in older equipment and they are absolutely just being decimated. They're obviously causing Ukrainian casualties as well. Ukraine has lost and suffered just unbelievable amounts of men and material, but it is still, it is just crazy to watch and it's hard to wrap your arms around that Russia has lost 220,000 killed or wounded. While we are on the topic of Russian losses, it looks like, at least around Bakhmut, that the Russians are increasingly convinced they will not take that city. We talked earlier, just in this on, in this specific episode, that Ukraine had rushed some forces up there. But there is video, and I've got it in the Substack notes, where the head of Wagner, and of course Wagner's who's doing the bulk of the fighting there, he's claiming that that Ukraine moved a reserve of like 200,000 people up there with a large amount of NATO equipment. And so he's talking about how hard it is to advance. Clearly, he's doing this to prepare his, quote, audience for the failure to take Bakhmut. Because remember, in Russia, you know, you work for a guy named Putin. And failing is not a good thing. Falling short of the mark can lead to, at a minimum, loss of your position. It can lead to arrest, if not death. So it's not good to be in Russia's military and fail. But it looks as though increasingly Russia has failed to take Bogmut, isn't going to take it, and so they're now beginning to make excuses for why they can't. It's insane that to say that Ukraine prepared about 200,000 reserve men to move up there. That's not even close to the case. But they probably did move several thousand, and they have obviously really strengthened their position there. Once Zelensky decided we're not giving up Bakhmut, they absolutely clamped down and have held it. While we are on the subject of defensive positions, I also have in the Substack notes some pretty amazing research where some analysts have been scoping out Russian fortifications that are being built up along the occupied Crimean Peninsula. Now, obviously, that's in the southern part of the country. Ukraine definitely wants to take that back. But there are satellite images of these trenches being built. And the reality is that it's going to be difficult to take back Crimea. It's a narrow, swampy isthmus. It's got one road in. I mean, it's a peninsula, so it starts very narrow and then goes a little bit wider into a you know, circular-like island, but there's only one way to really approach it, and that area is, or it's got Ukrainian mines on it, it's got Russian mines on it, there are fortifications, and so some of the analysts were talking on social media about, well, how, how do you attack into something like that? That would lead to heavy casualties for Ukraine, and there's a retired general named Ben Hodges who said that if he were in charge, what he would do is make the Crimean Peninsula just untenable. He would isolate it by severing the two bridges that connect it to Russia, and then he would use long-range precision fires, hit some of the cities, some of the assets, facilities, headquarters, etc., and basically just starve the Russians out. So there is some talk of that, so we'll see if that ends up being the case on what happens. But people are already beginning to plan for these potential Ukrainian uh, advances, that will happen probably in May, if you believe the Secretary of Defense for the United States. Speaking of those offensives, it's probably a good transition into some of the weapons that are going into Ukraine. They're finally arriving. We've been talking a bit um, about Slovakia sending some of its MiGs. And there is video out there that the first four MiGs were transferred to Ukraine. So... Ukraine got its first four MiGs from Slovakia. They sent ground support crew there and pilots. They checked everything. Four of them were flyable, so they sent them. The rest may end up being transported by rail, but they've got, you know, once those get into Ukraine, they're going to salvage the parts and help. They have some fighters of their own in Ukraine, so basically combine all these together and get some more jets flying 
just on the off chance that you weren't aware of what caused the transfer of these jets from Slovakia, just as a reminder, the Russian technical folks who had helped service and keep these MiGs flying inside Slovakia, which obviously used to be a country affiliated with Russia, but once those technical advisors left, Slovakia no longer had the ability to repair and maintain them, so eventually, one by one, they got to the point where they were unflyable. And currently, Slovakia is waiting on F-16s from NATO to replace them. They did get some helicopters at a very reduced price from the U.S. as part of their transition or their transfer of these MiGs to Ukraine. Other than the jets, there's additional news as far as weapons for Ukraine that has happened since last Thursday. The government of, of um, Ukraine has announced that British Challenger 2 tanks are now on Ukrainian soil. That was announced several months ago. No one was sure how long it would take. So the British Challenger 2 tanks are there. Those will be absolutely deadly against Russian armor. Also, the Leopards from Germany have been announced. The German ambassador said that 18 Leopard tanks are now in Ukraine. So you've got 18 Leopard tanks. So British Challengers, the Leopards have come. So there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 20 to 30 main battle tanks that are new and modernized that are there. They're not on the front line yet. I would say that would happen in the coming weeks. Also, Germany, the Martyrs, which they're, that is their infantry fighting vehicle. These have you know a good-sized cannon on top. They have the ability to transport troops, but that cannon on top is great at dealing with snipers, hardened positions, etc. So those are definitely going to help as well. Those have arrived. And additionally, one final thing, the French... Uh, light tanks, which are wheeled, so they have regular wheels, but they're basically a regular tank that are, they were donated by France, like I said, they have arrived as well. So Ukraine is beginning to build up its armored punch, so to speak. It's just a matter of where they will use those and to what effect. So that's all huge news for Ukraine. And let's just talk about just a couple of broader points regarding Russia, and then we're going to move on. The first broader point is Putin just continues to do a great job of uniting Europe against him. Since last Thursday, uh, the four Nordic countries have signed a deal that links their air force. So 250 planes will now operate in, I guess, unity working together as a defensive barrier against Russia. Those four countries are the, uh, well, the commanders were the uh, Sw Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish, and uh, Danish air forces, so Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. So this is something they've talked a bit since the 1990s. Not all of those countries are in NATO, and as the move for a couple of them to join NATO is being held up by Turkey, in the interim period, they decided to create what they're kind of calling a mini-NATO so that there's this unified Air Force capability because Russia continues to basically be a not-so-great neighbor and threaten people. One other story that I wanted to at least put the link in from the uh, Foreign Policy magazine is there's some people that are talking about that after the war is over at some point that Poland and Ukraine basically create an alliance because the Polish people have been very much threatened by this Russian war. Obviously, Poland was invaded by Russia in World War II. This is a, I was going to say decades long, kind of bloody history between the two, but it's real, really more like a centuries long bloody history. And then, like I said earlier in this podcast, there have been a lot of Russian commentators and their media that have talked about wanting to wipe out Poland because Poland is helping Ukraine defend itself. The Polish people have been greatly affected by the war because a lot of the fleeing Ukrainians went into Ukraine into Poland, excuse me, and Polish, you know, support services have had to spend a lot of money helping. The people have been very welcoming 
letting many of them live in their homes, etc. So Poland has definitely, absolutely been affected by this war. They've seen it. They've got family members in Ukraine, and so they're very much affected by it. So some folks are saying that after the war, Poland and Ukraine might kind of form an alliance because I don't think Ukraine's going to be able to get into NATO anytime soon, especially even once the peace treaty of whatever peace treaty ends up being signed, just because it will be too close to being on the border with Russia and it would be too much of a threat to other NATO countries that some kind of disturbance or skirmish in Ukraine could lead to a war between NATO, all of NATO versus Russia. So it'll be a while before Ukraine gets into NATO. And thus, in the interim period, some are saying, well, maybe Poland and Ukraine will sign an alliance. So wanted to throw that out there. One final thing, and then we're, I promise we're moving on from Russia. Russia, and I think this is one of those Putin had to try to make the news and scare people because he keeps thinking if he scares enough people in the West that comments by those on the right in the U.S. who are worried about the next World War III will cause enough American support to force their legislators to stop helping Ukraine. But Putin tried to threaten the world again, and he said Russia would soon station tactical nukes in Belarus. And the interesting thing about this one is that was quickly knocked down by Russia's new friend and ally, China. China's uh, foreign ministry spokesperson said, quote, a nuclear war cannot be won or fought. Wars between nuclear weapon states should be avoided and strategic risk should be reduced. So Putin makes this big comment about he's going to put some tactical nudes in Belarus. And immediately China's like, eh, no, nah, we don't think you should. So we talked about last week that China is increasingly the more powerful ally between those two. And they will increasingly be able to tell Russia and Putin what needs to be done or not done. And so... There you go. There's your first real sign that China is going to increasingly tell Russia what should or shouldn't be done because Putin has definitely weakened Russia and they are not in a place where they can dictate to other countries what can or can't be done anymore. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. There is an additional benefit to subscribing, which is you will get the view from the front extended. That is a daily email, Monday through Friday, usually in the mornings, that has just a quick summary of the latest military news happening out there. And again, that only goes out to paid subscribers. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription. You can find out all the details through my Substack page, and you can support through both Substack, Patreon, or Venmo. Again, all those details are on the Substack page. But believe me, you don't have to do any of these things. I've already had incredible support and feel called to do this. So as long as I'm making enough to cover the time I invest each week, I'm not going anywhere. All right, enough of the sales pitch. We will now move to some news about China itself. And thankfully, there hasn't been a lot that's happened since last week. Any week that we don't have a lot of bad things happen, that's a good thing. As we continue our very confrontational competition with China, which is probably the safest and nicest way to say it at this point. First thing I thought we'd talk about is a U.S. warship did go near some islands that China is now claiming, and there was a little bit of a tiff over that. China threatened consequences over this warship's actions. They called them, quote, serious consequences. And what happened was the U.S. Navy sailed a destroyer around the disputed uh, Paracel Islands. These are in the South China Sea. Uh, this was a second time they went by them for the second day in a row. And obviously, the South China Sea is a strategic waterway that China claims completely um, these islands are occupied by China, but they are also claimed by Taiwan and Vietnam. The U.S. Navy is calling the uh, ship movement a, quote, freedom of navigation operation. I should give credit to Military.com, who had the article, and a spokesperson emailed in this comment about the situation there and why they did it. Quote, unlawful and sweeping maritime 
claims in the South China Sea pose a serious threat to the freedom of the seas, including the freedoms of navigation and overflight, free trade and unimpeded commerce, and freedom of economic opportunity for South China Sea littoral nations. And I know I can't say the word littoral correctly, but I'm giving it the best shot I can. So these are obviously those islands that China has been building up some increased capability on. And we are every week talking about how China is trying to expand its influence and control, push, bully, intimidate neighbors. And that's what's happening there. And we're just reminding them that that is international waters and they don't get to claim that they can control that area just because they're big enough to put military stuff there. One other update from last week. We flew in some F-22s into the Philippines. Several weeks ago, we discussed a new agreement between the United States and and the Philippines to reopen and reestablish some air bases there. As a demonstration of strength, we flew in some F-22s there. Those are the F-22 Raptors. They are a very advanced plane, very capable They were from the Alaska-based 525th Fighter Squadron. And so they did some joint drills with the Philippine Air Force's 5th uh, 5th Fighter Wing. It's kind of hard to say. But uh, Defense News had a little write-up on it. i got a link to it if you want to read a little bit more of that. This was the uh, first time that F-22s or any 5th generation aircraft, which are obviously very sophisticated and advanced, uh, that have landed and operated out of the Philippines, according to one of the uh, Raptor pilots said in a release. So it's a, um, a milestone is what the uh, Air Force is calling it, with regional ally aides working together to provide stability and security in the Indo-Pacific. So wanted to share that as well. That was very quick to get some jets there when that agreement was just signed. I believe it was like two weeks ago. It hasn't been long for sure. Now, let's talk about a story I saw on Politico that the U.S. has been trying to get its allies to line up against China. And in the past, the article goes into that Europe has been a little hesitant, but of late, the Europeans are starting to pay attention. And a lot of that follows the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I'll read just a little bit from that story. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Europeans are starting to pay more attention to President Biden's message about the dangers of dependence on dictatorships. With urgency like never before, they are restricting exports of chip-making equipment to China, they being Europe, banning TikTok on government devices, and pushing protectionist trade policy. Even long-time holdout Germany, the European Union's biggest economy and a heavy investor in China, is starting to question its business-first ethos. There is, um, obviously, you, you can click the link to read a little bit more about it and some of the details, but I've talked about before that, you know, China's at a fork in the road, and they're at that fork almost every week. But it's crazy to me that a country that has been so economically successful is potentially going to risk it all by potentially trying to invade Taiwan. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know we don't have the perspective of their leaders, and I know they think Taiwan is a part of China, and it's not my place to say it is or isn't, but it's definitely a democracy in Taiwan. They obviously have a long history with friction with China. They don't want to be a part of China. So it's going to ultimately be a matter of does the West want to allow China to invade and do unbelievable amounts of bloodshed to retake part of what China sees as its own land and use that as a springboard to continue intimidating, pushing, and bullying other countries around it in the Pacific or does the United States and Europe want to take a stand with the help of Japan and all of these other countries over there, Australia and so many other countries, and just say, you know what? Uh, No, we're going to have peace, and we're not going to let you do it, and we're going to use something called deterrence to align many countries together so that you don't think about doing anything wrong. We wouldn't want you to covet that island because that's not very biblical, and so we're going to help you 
not make any bad decisions. So I did want to share that story. And then I think this will probably be the final thing I share on China. This is kind of in the weeds on strategy. But some of the analysts, and I've got photos in the Substack notes if you want to go look, about where this naval base is in relation to China. But some analysts shared some photos that had an American uh, aircraft carrier, four guided missile cruisers, and four destroyers, all of them literally moored side by side. So they're all tied together. They're in this uh, naval installation in Japan. And so it's a uh, Yokosuka. And it got a lot of analysts talking about how the Navy simply cannot position their ships like that as if this is like you remember this happened at Pearl Harbor in World War II and they were sneak attacked. And a lot of analysts were talking about that any ships that were literally tied to piers in Japan, in these uh, in Yokosuka or anywhere else, they're absolutely going to be destroyed within the first 15 minutes of a war with China. So a lot of the analysts say that Congress needs to be talking to the U.S. Navy Chief of Staff about why the U.S. Navy is basically putting these ships right next to each other. Now, obviously, we're not at war with China, but if something were to happen, there'd be very little warning, and China has a very large inventory of ballistic missiles that could very quickly destroy that those vessels sitting there, especially if they're not at general quarters. They're not able... You know, Probably half of their sailors aren't even on the ships. They're visiting parts of Japan, so... Definitely, those are the kinds of things that strategists do, is they talk about the worst-case what-ifs while you're at peace, so that hopefully we don't make any horrible strategic mistakes. And that's the kind of stuff that, for whatever reason, I really enjoy reading and thinking about, and so I'm glad that smarter heads than myself are thinking about these things before they potentially happen. All right, so we're going to move from the news happening in China to the Middle East for just a couple of minutes. Most of this has already kind of burned out, so to speak, since the last edition, but apparently everything happens after I post the last podcast. But also, after the last podcast, things went crazy in the Middle East in Israel. There were massive protests against some plans by Benjamin Netanyahu to change some things in the judicial, in the judicial system. So there were these massive, massive protests. You can see lots of photos on them on social media. I'll throw them in the Substack notes if you want to take the time to go look. But there were so many people that at one point it was as if 6% of Israel's population was protesting, including police chiefs. There were military reserve officers and soldiers who were saying they wouldn't serve. It was... Someone did the math. It was as if... What happened in Israel, if it had happened in America, it would be like 21 million Americans protesting in the streets. 21 million, which I believe the largest protests in America are like 1 million. We've had 1 million at one point, so it'd be as if 21 million were protesting in the streets. Because this uh, judicial reform uh, has just really, you know, Netanyahu is trying to do this so that he can basically protect himself from a corruption investigation and maintain power the allies of him who were a part of the plan initially were doing it because there have been you know they feel like that the ju judiciary has been a little bit too liberal and not conservative so they were okay with the plan but as they've seen a little bit better about what Netanyahu had in mind even some of his own supporters have balked his defense minister who he appointed, spoke out and said that it was putting Israel's national security at risk. He immediately fired that uh, defense minister. And so once that happened, the protests really broke out. The They were so bad that he eventually said he needed to at least put it off. At first, he said he was going to cancel the plans, but he's only punting it for about a month or so. But there have been unions launching broad protests. It's... Uh, it's been a lot, so this is probably, if I had to guess, and I probably shouldn't, but I probably will either. Anyway, this is probably the end of his political career, and it's it's been a long one that he's had, but I think he reached too far, and so these protests were just so massive. 
that more than likely, depending on how he plays this, the Israeli government will basically fall apart because if he can't keep a majority, they have to have elections again, and so that'll probably happen. And a lot of this won't affect America, hopefully at, at all, but uh, unless something bad were to happen. But I did want to share all that because it has been a lot. Israel is a important country in the Middle East, and when its government starts to falter or look the way that it has looked this week, it is definitely newsworthy. Let's move to some tech news, and there's only one item I wanted to discuss this week, which involves the Air Force, and I'm a big fan of the A-10 Warthog. For those who don't know, that's the low, slow-flying troop attack, basically Every troop in the world, whether Army soldier or U.S. Marine, loves the A-10. They've got a massive 30-millimeter cannon. They carry a ton of anti-tank missiles, and they will just rip apart armored columns or shred troops and vehicles. They have been on the chopping block for a long time by the Pentagon because they're older, but yet there's really nothing that really replaces them. There are drones that could, in theory, replace them, but drones don't carry as many missiles, and so there's constant discussion about should the A-10 be retired. It has nearly been retired a ton of times. However, something happened past week or so that might change that, and that is that the A-10, for the first time, was armed with what are called miniature air-launched decoys, uh, the ADM-160s, and these are like 300-pound aircraft that are launched mid-air, and they look like flying aircraft. They have the flat profile of other aircraft, and since they basically look exactly like other aircraft on a radar screen, the idea is that in the air, multiple planes could launch these miniature air-launch decoys, and the A-10 can actually carry 16 of them, and by doing that, you could completely overwhelm an enemy's air defense system. So you might have 5 or 10 A-10s take off. They launch 16 miniature air launch decoys each. You know, if you had 10 of them launch 16, that's 160 aircraft coming toward the enemy. They can't tell with their radars which one these miniature air launch decoys literally look exactly like regular uh, jets. So it completely overwhelms their systems and the amount of anti-air missiles that they have. So the Air Force is now looking at ways to overwhelm enemy defenses. And this is something that's come up, and it's a mission that could extend the life of the A-10 because it's, you know, a small, or not small, but it's a slow-moving jet that can carry a lot of weaponry, whereas a lot of the newer stuff, the F-35s, they have much smaller payloads. They are designed not to be seen by other radar, but they're not very powerful. They're kind of underpowered, and so a big jet like the A-10 with two engines can do something that they can't do very well. So I'll keep you posted on that as I hear more, but that's kind of a cool possible mission as a former ground pounder. I would love to see the A-10 stick around in case anything ever does happen with China or Russia where there are large columns of tanks or infantry. You want A-10s on your side, so that's that's my view on it. I know it's an older airframe, and I know the Air Force believes it can be replaced by other things, but what the Air Force often does is they'll take fighters that aren't great at ground attack, and they'll basically use the same airframe to do two missions, which is anti-air to shoot down other planes and to attack the ground. But usually when you do that, you have an aircraft that doesn't do either one very well. And so the A-10 was specifically designed for ground attack rolls. That's all it was designed for. And it was incredible at them. So it'd be nice if they could find a way to keep it around if it's the right move. I don't claim to know as much as the general, so I'm sure they have the right intentions with what they're trying to do but this might be a mission that changes their mind because carrying 16 of those decoys that's a big deal all right so let's move to some motivation and wisdom which is arguably the best part of the show 
So one of the things I want to say every week is I feel like all of us are very easily influenced, whether it's seeing someone run by on the street and then it's like, oh, I should go do exercise or whether we're watching the commercial and seeing food and suddenly we're very hungry. We all are very easily influenced. And so I want to do my small part to encourage each and every one of us that are out there because I certainly know that I need it. So I hope that these items I'm about to share help you. And if they do, definitely tell a friend, share it with them as well. We'll begin with the first one. And if you're new to the show, you can find all of these in the Substack notes. These are great folks to follow if you are still on Twitter, which is where almost all of them are from. Actually, I think all of them this episode are from there. Here goes the, uh, let's just begin. Here goes the first one. First it hurts, then it changes us. Oh, that's good, isn't it? First it hurts, then it changes us. We all have to deal with some pain before we start to actually change. Or as the old saying goes, sometimes you got to hit rock bottom. But first it hurts, then it changes us. Next one. Stop looking back. There is nothing there. Your healing, blessings, and miracles are ahead of you, not behind you. That one hits home a little bit. I'm bad to look back, and I bet you are too. So, again, the quote is, Stop looking back. There is nothing there. Your healing, blessings, and miracles are ahead of you, not behind you. Next one. Nothing in life will work without the work. No books, no seminars, no audio tapes, no gurus, nothing. Nothing will work if you don't. So good. Stop studying and start doing, right? Next one. Comparison will kill you. Be you. Another good one. Next one. Sometimes being strong is your only option. Another good one, isn't it? All right, next one. Can I be better today? Yes, I can. Will I be better today? Yes, I will. It's pretty good, isn't it? We should start every day thinking that. Can I be better today? Yes, I can. Will I be better today? Yes, I will. Next one. Your greatest asset in the world is your mindset. It's good, isn't it? Your greatest asset in the world is your mindset. This next one is just will floor you. It is better to walk alone than with a crowd going in the wrong direction. Dang, that's good, isn't it? It is better to walk alone than with a crowd going in the wrong direction. The next one is about trusting yourself. Slow down and trust that everything is falling into place. Man, we all want to like frantically run around and solve things ourselves, don't we? Slow down and trust that everything is falling into place. Next one. One day you will thank yourself for never giving up. Love that one. One day you will thank yourself for never giving up. Next one. Confidence is created by facing your fears. Again, confidence is created by facing your fears. I love that one. We should all be trying to face whatever scares us and get stronger. Face your fears. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us 
in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. Do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. I've written a CIA Marine Sniper series. I've written a detective series. I've written a private investigator series. I've written a crammed, action-packed western. I've written a motivational self-help book. And I've even written two realistic war novels, one about World War II, one about Afghanistan. You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell, or you can find a link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week, and with that, I am out.